Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a coat tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the coat, his owners said to them, Why are you untying this coat? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the coat, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize a time when God visited you. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those who are new, I'm Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And, you know, Palm Sunday, it's a, a big Sunday in the church calendar. And we started out so well. I was processing with the littles um, during our first song. And I was holding the littlest Wong baby. And he was smiling and all was going well until I looped back. And then he looked at me and just started screaming and crying. And that might be a little bit of a prophetic sign for all of us, because today's passage actually, the first half of it does carry a punch. You might not see it coming. In fact, in the first service, when I said something, our own Kathy Amendola just gave me this look. So I, I just thought it'd be helpful to warn you, the first half of our sermon is a little bit heavier today. So be prepared. We're going to look at uh, this passage, Luke 19. But before we do so, would you bow your heads with me as I began with a brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of our message today is Jesus, the King Who Weeps. And I'd like to begin by asking everyone this question. When you think of a king, who or what comes to mind? A few years ago, I came across the following story of a self-proclaimed king in Africa, a man by the name of Jean Bedell Bacasa, as relayed by R. Kent Hughes on December the 4th, 1977 in Bangui, 
capital of the Central African Empire, the world witnessed the coronation of his imperial majesty, Bokasa I. The price tag for that single event, designed and choreographed by French designer Olivier Bryce, was $25 million in 1977. Estimated at $90 million in today's currency. At 10.10 a.m. that morning, the blare of trumpets in the roll of drums announced the approach of His Majesty. The procession began with eight of Bacasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Bedell Bacasa II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed the favorite of Bacasa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made from Lanville, Lanvin, excuse me, of Paris, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. The emperor arrived in an imperial coach bedecked with gold eagles and drawn by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. When the band blared the sacred march of his majesty, Emperor Bacasa I, his highness strode forth cloaked in a 32-pound robe decorated with, listen to this, 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery. White gloves adorned his hands, pearl slippers his feet. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by Roman councils of old a symbol of the favor of the gods. As the song came to a conclusion, Bacasa seated himself on his $2.5 million eagle throne, took his gold laurel wreath off, and as Napoleon had done 173 years prior, took his $2.5 million crown, which was topped with an 80-carat diamond, and placed it on his head. At 10.43 a.m. on December 4, 1977, the 20th century saw a new emperor come to power, a new king come to power. Thankfully, his reign did not last long. After accusations of embezzlement and extreme violence, including the execution of hundreds of kids and students because they complained over the cost of their government-mandated uniforms, the French engineered a coup and removed Bacasa from power in 1979. From there, the emperor, imperial majesty Bacasa I, as he liked to refer to himself, was later found guilty of treason, murder, and various other charges. And he'd spend the rest of his days in solitary confinement and um, <clears throat> exile. He died in 1996. So why do I begin with this story? I began with it because in a world where pomp and power are so highly prized, in our hearts, deep in our hearts, I believe we all long for a different kind of leader, a different kind of king. And this brings us to Palm Sunday. What's known as Palm Sunday, just over 2,000 years ago, Jesus introduced himself as king, a new kind of king, a different kind of king, to our broken world. 
And his coronation was completely different than that of Bocasus I or other leaders we even see today in that it was um, highlighted by humility, service, and grace. So listen, whether you're someone who is seasoned in faith or searching today for faith, whether you've studied Luke 19 or this is all new to you, whether you love Jesus or are utterly confounded by Jesus, I believe our passage today will both move and challenge us if we come with open hearts. So that's the invitation right now. Come with an open heart to this moment in the life of the church as we look at Luke 19. This leads us to our big idea. Whether we praise Jesus or disdain Jesus, we don't really know Jesus until we've seen him weep. Whether we praise Jesus or disdain Jesus, we don't really know him uh, until we've seen him weep. And we'll break this down into three points. Point one, see the praise of Jesus. Point two, see the disdain for Jesus. Point three, see him weep. So let's dive in. Point one, see the praise. See the praise of Jesus. Beginning with verse 29, as he, Jesus, approached Bethpage and Bethany at a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one's ever ridden. Untie it, bring it. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord has need for it. So those who were sent left, found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought this colt to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near down the path of Mount of the Olives uh, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles he'd done. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. Okay, let's stop right there and just picture this with me. Jesus comes by way of east of Jerusalem. He crests this thing called the Mount of Olives, mysteriously acquires a donkey or a colt, rides in like a humble folk hero, using his disciples' cloaks as a saddle. People start stripping down, throwing clothes in front of him, making a ragtag red carpet, all while singing in his praises. So we're meant to ask, what is this all about? What is going on? Well, a lot, actually, but before we look at that, I want to take a pulse on the room. Do we have any people here who grew up as 90s kids? Give me a nod. A lot of, there's more 90s kids in the 11 a.m. service than the 9 a.m. service. So tell me if you recognize this this song, okay? Ready? I saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Life is demanding. Honeybee, you got it. Some of y'all got it. Listen, it's the song, The Sign, from Mike Banks' favorite band, Ace of Bass. (laughs) And it's one of the, I think I snorted. (laughs) I know that that'll be caught in the podcast. It's one of those songs that once you hear it, you can't unhear it, friends. You're welcome. Well, I heard this song a lot growing up, and the reason I share it today in this sermon is Luke, the author of this gospel passage, wants us to see all of the signs, all of the signs that point to Jesus 
being the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Davidic king sent to bring redemption to the world. Look at this with me. First, Luke basically says, look back, friends. Look back at the signs. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. All right, for those who know the Old Testament, let me ask, from where exactly did the Israelites expect the deliverer to approach Jerusalem? Zechariah 14. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And on the Mount of Olives will, uh, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north, half moving south. Then the Lord will, God will come and all the holy ones with him, we read. And you see, this was written some 500 years before Jesus walked the earth. And where does Jesus begin his procession as king? The Mount of Olives, sign number one. Sign number two, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the very ends of the earth. Again, this was written some 500 years before Luke 19 happened. And what did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on, Jack? A colt, a donkey, right? And Jesus, note, he didn't come riding in on a war horse. He came riding in on an animal of peace. This was no accident. Sign number two. Next, what about all those clothes, people stripping, throwing their clothes in front of Jesus as he processes? Is that prophetic? You bet it is. In 2 Kings 9, when Jehu was anointed king of Israel, we read these words. Jehu said to his officers, here's what he, the prophet, told me, meaning Elijah. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king, Jehu is king. In other words, Jesus wasn't just a somebody in Luke 19. He's the long awaited king for the Israelites. The original crowd would have seen this and we're meant to see this. Sign number three, one more sign. What about all the singing? Jenna, any significance with all that singing? You bet, you bet. The, the line actually comes from a group of psalms. Specifically, it comes from Psalm 118. But a group of songs would be sung at certain times of the year for the nation of Israel. And these psalms are called the Hallel songs, Psalm 113 to 118. And they'd be sung during the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. Thus, Jesus' arrival represents, listen, a new exodus a new exodus whereby God once again will deliver his people like he did in Egypt. Again, that's really interesting, really cool. Sign number four. So with these signs, Luke basically says, look back, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And this unleashed praises. However, there's more. Look at this with me. Luke also urges us not just to look back, but he says, Robin, look around. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the promises of God, he's the very embodiment of those promises. I don't know if you caught it, verse 37. 
Now he came down near the path, down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all of the miracles they had seen. For all the miracles. Miracles, miracles. These people had seen miracles and had unleashed praise. In fact, right before this moment in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, Jesus had raised someone from the dead. Do you remember that story? His name? Lazarus. So theologians believe this flash mob are following Jesus because he's doing great things. We read more about this throughout Luke. He'd cast out demons, healed lepers, given sight to the blind, somehow fed thousands and thousands with very few ingredients, and even stilled a hurricane force storm. Jesus, plain and simple, was a folk hero. And he rode into Jerusalem, and this was unleashing praises. They praised him. They literally unclothed themselves and created this flash mob, ragtag, red carpet. They had looked back and seen the signs of the fulfillment, and they'd seen the signs of the embodiment of the Messiah. It's incredible, right? Well, remember how I warned you to start? Here's the warning. There's a twist, a challenge, really. Despite all of the signs, seeing all of the signs and taking part in this massive praise service, not one of these people, not one of these people actually knew Jesus. Not one. How do we know? We know because not one of these people would be found by Jesus' side when he was taken through a sham trial, tortured and condemned to die. Not one single person was by his side. Not a single man, woman, or child was found, found singing his praises at that point in history. Not one. The point is this. It is impossible, excuse me, it is possible it is possible to experience, friends, the goodness of Jesus and even sung his praises and not really know him. It's possible to look at what Jesus has done for us and can do for us and still miss the bigger picture. It is. Call it shallow faith, nominal faith, what have you done for me lately, Jesus kind of faith, but it's possible to see Jesus, even celebrate Jesus and not really get him or know him. More on this in point three. First, let's move to point two. See the disdain for Jesus. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. So here we move, we see the story move from praise to disdain, praise to disdain. Some apparently loved Jesus, at least on the surface. And some did not. Why? Because Jesus was and is a threat to all in power and all who hold influence. As Revelation would later put it, Jesus is either the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, demanding our affection and our ultimate allegiance, or he's not. Jesus is either the Messiah, the Redeemer, the very Son of God, or he's not. That's what Scripture presents. There's no middle ground even presented by Jesus himself. And guess what? Some people didn't like that. Some people specifically didn't like him. They disdained him. He was a threat. Not in a physical sense, but in a lifestyle sense, in an authority sense, in a popularity sense. And this included a group known as the Pharisees. So who were the Pharisees? Well, they were high-ranking Jews 
who took their faith very, very seriously, literally, both the oral tradition and the written tradition. There's a lot of pride in this group. Thus, throughout the Gospels, when we read about them praying, they prayed publicly. When they gave, they gave pridefully. When they rebuked, they did it oh so publicly so all could see. And guess what? Jesus thought they were hypocrites. Matthew chapter 21, we read, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So the Pharisees, these religious leaders, were hypocrites. And yet, despite being versed in the scriptures, they somehow completely missed the mark with Jesus. Again, this is another warning, if you will. If anyone should have recognized the coming Messiah... It should have been this group, but they missed it and they missed him and thus they missed the redemption. So again, another warning, another heavy challenge for us, especially those who've grown up in the church. Listen, it shows it's possible to be in a faith community living obediently and piously and completely miss or distort Jesus. That's kind of scary, right? It shows it's possible, listen, to even be a leader in a faith community in a local sense, a regional sense, or even a national sense and somehow miss or distort Jesus. And friends, I'm afraid we're seeing this all over our country right now. Hypocrisy. No one likes it. Yet most feel they're not susceptible to it. Another story, this one I sourced online this week. A man was being tailgated by a stressed out woman on a busy boulevard. Suddenly the light turned yellow. He did the right thing, stopping at the crosswalk, even though he could have beaten the red light by gunning it through the intersection. The tailgating woman was furious, honked her horn, screaming in frustration as she dropped her cell phone in her makeup, missing her chance to get through the intersection. Still ranting, she heard a tap on her car window and looked up and saw the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, ma'am, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I pulled up behind you in your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you, cussing a blue streak at him, and I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker. The choose life license plate holder, the follow me to Sunday school sticker in the chrome plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. Naturally, I assumed you had stolen the vehicle. <laughs> the Pharisees were hypocrites. They were so caught in their own story that they missed the brilliant God story unfolding right in front of their eyes. This led them to distort and disdain Jesus. 
And let's see their actions as another warning for each one of us, beginning with me. Point three, see Jesus weep. See Jesus weep. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize when God visited you. In the words of Bishop N.T. Wright, Jesus' tears are at the core of the Christian gospel. I just love that. Jesus' tears are at the core of the Christian gospel. So what is Jesus crying about here? Well, just as there's joy in the reception of God's love, there's sorrow, deep sorrow in the rejection of that love. Just as there's joy in the reception of God's love, Nancy, there's deep sorrow in the rejection of that love. And here in Luke 19, Jesus has come to Jerusalem, following all of the prophets of old, in years of his own ministry, calling people to repentance and new life in him. And he's met, been met time and time and time again by waywardness, shallowness, and arrogance. In other words, people have basically said through the words or their actions, I want to be my own king. I want to be my own queen. Sure, they tasted the goodness of Jesus' love but they still miss the weight and horror of their own sin. Consequently, Jesus has finally come. He's finally come to Jerusalem to execute God's judgment. For if God is just, he must punish sin, right? And with that judgment, Jesus has brought his tears. As he approached Jerusalem, we read, he wept. He wept. Again, just as there's joy in the reception of God's love, friends, there's sorrow in the rejection of that love. And to illustrate this point, and this one is close to my own story, think of trying to love an addict. Have any of you ever tried to love an addict before, an active addict? Prior to launching our church, for years I ran a counseling hub out of New England. And we do interventions alongside families and hope to pull men, women, and teens out of the throes of addiction. It was raw work. It was painful work. I cried and watched a countless families uh, cry over many years trying to help a loved one. Sometimes the addict would receive help, and sometimes they would reject it. But listen, here's the truth. Everyone through the intervention was given a choice to receive the help they needed or reject it. The same is true with Jesus. The same is true with Jesus and you and me today. In the words of Tim Keller, every religion has a prophet who's pointing to God. Jesus is the only one who says, I am God and I am coming to find you. Friends, Jesus is he's a different kind of king, a new kind of king. In fact, as we approach this Holy Week, we'll see him do the absolute unthinkable. 
When God's punishment is about to come down, Jesus will say, take me, punish me, my life for their life, my blood for their blood. And so a new exodus will begin. Chains will be broken. Justice will roll like a river. Forgiveness will pour from a rugged tree. But listen, the one who's slain this Passover lamb is not one who's been given by a person. No, this Passover lamb sacrificed for you and for me is the one who's been given by God for you and for me out of what? Out of love, out of love. We'll sing about this love in just a minute out of his mercy, triumphing over judgment. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, King Jesus, a new kind of king, a different kind of king. Some 2,000 years ago, he sat on a donkey and he wept, holding in his heart both God's love and his judgment for you and for me. So whether we praise Jesus or disdain Jesus, we don't really know him until we've seen him weep until we've seen him weep. To close, I offer this quote from C.S. Lewis. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Let me repeat that. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. Friends, today I invite you to seek and to knock and to find and surrender your life to this Jesus, the real Jesus. He's a new kind of king. He's a different kind of king. He's the king who weeps. He weeps. I never saw my dad cry. Until my brother's life was threatened by addiction. Huge bouts of binging on drugs. And we did an intervention. I never saw my dad cry until that moment in my life. And instead of condemning my brother, he offered my brother his heart and help. Jesus is a king who weeps. So whoever you are and whatever you're bringing with you today, he's not going to condemn you, condemn you. He's going to love you. He's going to cry for you. And he, he's going to give his life for you. That's what we celebrate at Easter. Whether we praise Jesus or disdain him, we don't really know him until we've seen him weep. May his tears wash over every one of us in the coming days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.